Okay, we, uh, we're in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We discussed this uh, a little bit last week. We'll uh, review it rather quickly and then move on. Uh, the true rank of Christians, verses 1 through 6. <coughs> the chapter deals with lawsuits among brethren. Uh, it's uh, nothing. We'll just let that go. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? That would be in the church. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more? Things that pertain to this life. How much more qualified are we to judge things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? That can be a bit challenging to understand. Uh, a lot of this chapter is. Uh, when you translate from uh, the Greek language into English, a word-for-word -word translation, like our Bibles are. Uh, you wind up sometimes with incomplete statements uh, because there's nothing in the original language that would support adding to the text in order to make it more understandable. Uh, but I can do that here with you, so that's what I'm going to do. I believe the idea of what Paul's trying to get across is why do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church? That would be the ungodly or world-minded, the unfaithful, and unbelievers. If you go down to the Jackson County or Gainesboro and uh, you uh, go to the court, who's going to judge your case? You don't know. But you're going to have a, a whole lot of people who think differently than you do. Um, most people, of course, are world-minded. And they, they look at things differently than we do. It's not just about what's true and what's false. It, our, 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 our character, our philosophy comes into our judgments. It has an effect on what we hear uh, and how we hear it. Uh, why? He's saying, why would you go to a, a civil court in Gainesboro to judge you or your business? Why would you leave it up to people you don't even know to make such a decision? That would seem foolish uh, from his point of view. Christians are going to judge the world and angels. And if Christians shall judge the world and angels, wouldn't you prefer to be judged by your own instead of by unbelievers or world-minded people? Wouldn't that give you the best ruling in a case you may have against another in the church? Okay, that's, his, that's the way he's approaching this. I say this to your shame. You should have known that is what he's saying. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you in the congregation? Isn't there anybody in the congregation that's got enough sense, integrity, or wisdom 
to judge your, your business? Who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother. When he speaks of the law, he's speaking of world-minded, because that's what the law is, let's face it. Civil government isn't in our wheelhouse. We live on a different plane than the world does. We look at things completely different than the world does. Uh, they're all about the here and now, we're all about the then and there. It's, it's just different philosophies, radically different philosophies. Uh, so what have you got? You got a brother who goes to the world-minded to judge his business with another brother. And that just seems wrong. Well, because it is. <laughs> yes, it doesn't make sense. Now here's the problem you run into, and I think especially today. <clears throat> We've become far removed from following such precepts in the Bible. Uh, we're careful to watch out for baptism and uh, mechanical music and all that stuff. But when it comes to these types of matters, uh, dealing with uh, issues wherein it's, things are supposed to be determined by the church, uh, we're reluctant to let those things happen. Okay, they're in the book, we know they're in the book, let's not talk about that, let's just take our business to court and get it over with. I think uh, probably to a very large degree, these matters are just not considered, which of course makes us hypocrites. What's the difference between brethren who uh, disregard the Bible teaching on baptism and us who disregard the Bible teaching on brother going to law against brother? Is there a difference or is not the hypocrisy equal? I think the hypocrisy would be equal. Well, what problem do we have today? Number one, it's not something that's in our wheelhouse anymore. It's fallen by the wayside over the years and today we don't talk about it. Number two, we may not trust the church to judge our matters. I can think of a number of elderships that uh, I wouldn't want to, uh, to trust to make a judgment in uh, some situations. I wouldn't do it uh, because I know them uh, and I know uh, how they think. I know what they think and I wouldn't want it to happen. Sometimes I think brethren are fearful of doing such a thing because they don't trust those who would be judging the matter. But if the church is kept as pure as possible, and I say as possible because there's no, you know, we're not gonna have 100% purity, uh, let's be honest about it. But I, I think we can have a, a very pure church and when thinking of matters that need a decision, uh, such as a land dispute, uh, aren't there enough uh, men among us to get together and make such a decision? And if not, we got a big problem. We got a very big problem. If there's no one we can trust, if there's no one we have that much confidence in, it's either on our part, uh, due to a lack of uh, belief in the New Testament way of doing things, or it's on the part of our church leadership. Uh, we just don't have people who have 
are established, let's say, they've been around for a long time, uh, who we find to be trustworthy or that we have confidence in. And either way, uh, that's a sad commentary on us as a congregation. Now, whether people do it or don't do it, for the most part, it isn't done. Uh, I've seen brethren in, in court battling one another, and I've never seen them take it up in the church. It's just not something that seems to be done very often. Uh, hopefully, like us, maybe, we, we don't have that problem. Nobody's taking anybody to court. That would be wonderful. And uh, I think that is the case, best of my knowledge. But uh, if there was such a dispute, it's supposed to be settled in-house. It's just like a family dispute. If, we, if I have a, a problem in my house, when BR gets really mean and talks to me in a bad way, uh, I don't come and tell you. Well, I guess I do, don't I? <laughs> no, no. When it's serious, <laughs> you'll never know it when it's serious. <laughs> Anything I say, it's always going to be in fun. But uh, we just don't, we don't air our dirty laundry in public. And sometimes we have dirty laundry. So, you know, we talk about it within the family, but we try not to let it get outside. And that's the way the church is supposed to be, like a family. Uh, keep it in-house. Don't let it get out. When it gets out, that creates a problem for the Lord. Uh, his reputation is tarnished. He is not glorified. And of course, it's a, it's a stain on the church because uh, people will hold that against us uh, times 10. That's the way it seems to go. Uh, you never hear nothing about a preacher, but let him have an adulterous affair and everybody and their brother's gonna know about it. That's just the way it goes. And uh, anytime there's a problem in the family, uh, it's always going to be multiplied times 10. And that's bad. That's really bad. <clears throat> and that before unbelievers. Well, the ideal is you become a spectacle. He's talking in a military term in the language. Uh, you, you, you appear as a spectacle before uh, the unbelievers. The spectacle is a, a term that was used uh, with regard to uh, uh, the games in the Colosseum predominantly uh, when, um, when people were forced to fight wild animals, for example. Uh, they were a spectacle to those who were in the stands watching. Uh, and when we do battle in a civil court, uh, we become such a spectacle to the unbelievers. Uh, it's a pitiful sight indeed. Okay, uh, verses uh, 7 and 8. The true attitude of Christians. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. You failed. When you've come to that point, there's a failure. Something's wrong. You may have a problem with a brother, for example, over a land dispute, and you say, well, why don't we let the church decide this? And he says, I ain't going to do it. I'm going to the courthouse, and we're going to solve it down yonder. Well, now there's a fault between the brethren. Something's wrong. Something's not right. If each person was what they ought to be, 
they ought to be willing to accept the decision of the court. And if one of them refuses to do so, he's refusing the command from God. So there's a problem. There's a fault uh, that lies there. And that's what he's talking about. Sometimes those things happen. I, I'd say they probably happen quite often uh, if the matter ever comes up at all. Why do you not rather uh, accept the wrong? I, I've heard of, I wasn't involved in it, but I heard one time of two elders in the church who were having a, a knockdown drag out over uh, a couple feet of land. That was back in the day when people had you know, 100 acres or so at least. Uh, and, and someone would say, well, you know, your, your, your fence is uh, over two feet on my land. Uh, and he says, no, it's not. It's right where it's supposed to be, okay? And he doesn't want to move his fence. What do you do? Paul said, why not take it? Take the loss. Now, that would be hard to do. But look what we got. We've got the reputation of the church involved. We've got the reputation of these elders involved. We've got a falling out between two brethren that will never be fixed. And that brother who's so hard-headed and refuses to make any type of a compromise or be reasonable uh, he's going to lose his soul. And before it's over, you may lose yours too. Is it really worth two feet of ground? Is it really worth that to defend your right? When the truth of the matter is, it don't belong to you anyway. Because soon you'll die and somebody else will live on it. You really want to make a mountain out of a molehill? over something of such little value in the great scheme of things? How many times have you taken it wrong because you didn't want it to become a major issue? We all done it. Sometimes we feel like we've been slighted. A lot of times we weren't. We just felt like we were. And what did we do? Well, I'm not going to make a big deal out of this. I'm just going to let it go. Uh, sometimes uh, we, we are slighted. Brother so-and-so over here, uh, his wife has left him. He's got the kids and the dogs. His heart is broken. He's having a very hard time. And now he's acting out of character. You know, I know this man, that's not the way he is. But with all these problems coming down on him, all of a sudden he's, he's become uh, very brash in the way he talks to people. Do I want to make a mountain out of a molehill or do I want to try to understand his situation? There's so many ways to look at it. There's so many ways to reason. But I want justice. Boy, aren't you glad that God doesn't want justice? You know, if God wanted absolute justice, we'd all be going to a devil's hell. But it's because that's not what he wanted. 
that grace was offered to us. And by the blood of our Lord, we can be pardoned and have the hope of eternal life. Um, sometimes you got to just pass it along, just like the Lord did. He's our great example, and we strive to be like him. Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? What is it, a little money? No, you yourselves do wrong, and then you cheat. Get involved in a cat fight, and before you know it, you're down in the mud slinging mud at each other. Uh, everybody becomes guilty of wrongdoing. And, add to it, you do these things to the children of God. Is that the way Christ did? Remember, we're told to, we have the example of Christ and walk in his footsteps. We're to possess the mind of Christ. Sometimes when we're faced with a situation, we've got to give serious consideration to those things. What would the Lord do if he was in my shoes right now? How would he respond? He wasn't a proud man in the sense that he demanded his rights. Uh, he was a man that was very uh, compassionate and very tolerant of the ugliness that people can sometimes be capable of. <clears throat> that brings us to the true character of a Christian, verses 9 through 11. I've broken this up in real little pieces because the language is challenging. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Do not, do not believe a lie. You know, I, I just told you, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't think it will be otherwise, because it will not. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. In Revelation 22 and 15, John added, whoever loves and practices a lie. None of these people who are guilty of such sins, not one of these will inherit the kingdom of God. I deal with, uh, I have dealt over the years with a great many homosexuals, lesbians, um, and trying to get this point across is very hard because they've been told by others uh, that it's, uh, it's okay. We'll get into the next chapter, chapter 7. Paul's going to talk uh, about remaining in the calling wherein you were called. And there's some preachers, teachers, counselors, whatever, who tell people, if a, a homosexual person, for example, uh, you are a homosexual, you were born this way, uh, according to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, you are to remain where you are as a homosexual. You can be a Christian, you can live as a Christian, and still be a homosexual. Because whatever state you're in, once you become a Christian, your sins are washed away, and somehow 
that situation is magically transformed and it's no longer a sin. No, not for you. It's no longer a sin. there are uh, a number of people uh, who teach this. Uh, they're usually not out in the public eye very much uh, because uh, everybody will squeal and howl once they hear it. Uh, but these things are told. Some of these folks, our neighbors uh, who are homosexuals, they believe that it's okay. And when you try to show them that it's not, it's very hard to do. We want to be right. We always want to be right. And when somebody like one of us comes along and says, well, you've got to give up your lifestyle, they, 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 they'll stub up like a mule and won't take another step. And uh, it's very sad. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God, Paul said. Don't deceive yourself. Don't make yourself think that you will, if you're watching on the internet, uh, don't tell yourself a lie, because it's not gonna happen. I don't know how Paul could have been any clearer than he is. And such were some of you. What? Unrighteous, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, and liars. Some of you, that's what you were, okay? Notice he uses the word were, past tense, but you were washed. That, of course, is to baptism. You were washed. Your sin was removed. You were sanctified. You were made holy. You were justified. You were forgiven by the grace of God. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. But you can't go back into sin again. It's not, it's not just you that's a sinner. The action you were participant in is sinful. So you can't be cleaned and stay in the same frame of mind and be forgiven. Repentance involves turning away from the sin and that must be done. Uh, Some people, they don't care one way or the other what the Lord says, but there are some people who do. They care and uh, they need to know what God has said on the matter. Okay, uh, verses 12 through 20, fleeing sexual immorality. Um, We don't talk about this a lot because, uh, frankly, I don't like to. I find it very embarrassing to talk about such things. Uh, But that's that's not right on my part to be that way. Uh, These things are discussed in great detail in the scriptures, and the least I can do is my best to try to explain what the apostle's talking about. One of the things that's not pointed out in just black and white is the fact that sexual desires or passions or lusts are very strong. They're very powerful. 
Psychologists will tell us that this is the most powerful drawing power human beings experience. Now, not all people, not all people are so, so driven by their passion, but the most part, people are. It's, a, it's something that maybe for us is hard to understand uh, why people would, would be that way. Uh, but it's a natural phenomenon. Animals, when it's time, the animals get ready and uh, they start making babies. Uh, it's it's a, a lust in the animal. And they do what the nature drives them to do. This is what the body, this is one of the uh, uh, designs in the body is to have such a drive. And some people... Um, are driven by passions only. Some people are, are driven by the Lord, but that doesn't mean the passions are gone. They're still there. David, King David, the man after the heart of God, was driven by his passions to commit adultery with Bathsheba. And given all, David understood and the fact that he was chasing after the very heart of God himself. His passion still overruled his mind. And he did what he knew was wrong. That's how strong passions can be. And we always have to keep that in mind. Sometimes people make mistakes. They do things they didn't want to do, but they did it anyway. In chapter 7, Paul's going to talk about that. Why did I do the things I did? I got no idea. I knew it was wrong, but I did it anyway. And I think we all can understand that because none of us are exempt from being overwhelmed by passions. So as we go through this part, uh, keep that ideal in mind of how strong uh, passions are. Uh, some people say, well, that's dirty, that's dirty. No, it's not. God created it. It's what God wants. He designed us that way. How could it be dirty? He tells us to do these things. How could it be dirty? When done in the right manner, in the right way, it's the most beautiful thing. It's when we when we skirt marriage, that's when we get into problems. Now, that's not what Paul's necessarily going to talk about. <coughs> uh, not about um, marriage, per se. Not in the way I'm just now talking about it. But nonetheless, uh, he will touch on the passion part uh, very much. All things are lawful for me, such as eating meats. But all things are not helpful. Too controversial. It's just not worth it. There's too much misunderstanding about meats, Paul would say. Therefore, I don't eat the meats because I don't want to offend my brethren. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. I will not be addicted to any, uh, such as becoming a glutton or something like that. The body is for the Lord, verses 13 and 14. 
Foods for the stomach, stomach for foods. God created both. God will destroy both it and them. I think the it would be the stomach. Them would be the foods. God will destroy both the stomach and the foods. Sometimes when we think about the resurrection of the body, uh, as a matter of fact, I don't think I ever thought differently until I studied this several years ago, but um, we think about the body being resurrected, we think about it being re resurrected as we are. Will the resurrected body have a stomach? <laughs> that seems silly to ask, but what need is there for a stomach? Then you're not going to need food. Why would you need a stomach? Would you need a colon? Well, if you don't need food, you're not going to use the bathroom facilities. Why would you need a colon? And the list would go on and on and on. A heart, what we call the heart, the pump. Uh, well, is that a part of the resurrected body? Does it need to be raised from the dead? What Paul's getting to here is that the parts that make up the body are non-essential. That's not what's going to be resurrected. What's going to be resurrected, however, is the body as an entity in and of itself. He's separating the body, let's say, from the stomach. It's different between the two. Uh, keep that in mind as we proceed. Each body part uh, has a purpose, has a function. It's part of the machine that we are. I can't describe it like Bert Thompson used to, but uh, I used to get a big kick out of it when he would take various parts of the body and turn it into a little city. And it had its own uh, sanitation system and all that stuff. Uh, I thought that was uh, really good the way he did all that. Uh, but those things were designed by God, of course. The heart was designed by God. The, the colon was designed by God. Everything inside of us was designed by God, and it operates like a well-oiled machine. Each of those parts, Paul said, has a purpose, has a reason for being there. It has something to do with the world in which you and I live, where we eat food and all that stuff. Okay? They have a purpose. But God will destroy both it and them. In this case, he will destroy... Uh, those various parts they're not needed any longer now the body is not for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body the purpose of the body is not sexual immorality that may be what it's primarily used for but that's not the purpose of it the purpose of the body was that it would be a temple dedicated to God that was why God gave us a body with all these magnificent parts inside. Uh, this, this body is his property, uh, not ours. It's not for, for sexual immorality. One of the things uh, I think we have to get past sometimes is that if you can't have a little fun, what good is life? That, that philosophy needs to go away. Because there's much, much more to life than just having a little fun. Having a little fun along the way is a great thing, and nobody enjoys it more than I do. But that's not the purpose. That's not why we're here. We may wind up 
in World War III and have to learn how to speak Chinese in the next five years. I don't know such things. But were it to happen, we're going to have to worry less about fun and more about how to learn to speak Chinese. These things, there's no promise of fun. That's not a part of life. That's not the purpose of life. The purpose of life is to glorify God. And the body is the temple that God resides in. It belongs to him. And that's what Paul's saying. Yes, the body is fully capable of being immoral. But that's not what it was designed to be. It has a higher purpose. And it's our responsibility to make sure that the body fulfills the purpose that God assigned it. God both raised up the Lord Jesus, and he will also raise us up by his power. That is, the body will be raised. The spirit, of course, will be in the Hadean realm, but the body will be raised back up from wherever it lies. The body is a member of the body of Christ. All bodies are. <clears throat> Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? <clears throat> Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Shall I take and use my body for fornication or adultery? This body belongs to Christ. The purpose of it is to glorify Christ. Shall I take what belongs to him and use it for self-gratification with a prostitute? Is that what I should do? And, of course, the answer to that is no. Someone says, you're married. Well, what if I wasn't married? What if I was single? Should I use it for such purposes then? And, of course, the answer comes back with a resounding no. Well, if we all know the answer is no, then why do people fornicate and commit adultery? It's because of the, the power of lust. It's very, very powerful. And for some who may be weak in the faith or have a weak resistance, it can be very overpowering. And sometimes, even us, we do things we, we, we don't want to do. But because of the lust, we do it. And then we shatter our lives over it. If at all possible, we need to be compassionate and remember these things, how hard it can be to not be given into our lusts. Certainly not. We don't take the members of Christ, our bodies, and use them with a harlot. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? They become one in a sense. For the two, God said, shall become one flesh. Now, he's not saying that if you are single and you fornicate with a harlot that you have married her because of copulation. That's not what he's saying. That doesn't constitute marriage. But nevertheless, you're taking what belongs to the Lord and with this harlot, you're joined together and become one. How can that which belongs to Christ be joined to a harlot, he's asking. That's unreasonable. That's, that's unthinkable. So you can't engage in such activities. 
But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And we are joined to the Lord. We're married to him. We're his bride, his wife, and therefore fornication. Uh, for the unmarried is wrong because you take what belongs to the Christ and join it to that which is of sin. And we know that's not right. We know in our minds that's not right. Flee sexual immorality. I think of David a lot. He's helped me understand all this stuff a great deal. Uh, I have no doubt that he was after the heart of God, and yet at the same time he committed such heinous acts, one because of lust, another because of pride. And uh, it's amazing what we can convince ourselves is okay when we know it's not okay. Flee sexual immorality. You could say flee fornication, same thing. Sexual immorality, fornication, both means the same thing. A lot of people today don't even know what the word fornication means. I think some of our translators have taken that into consideration and used the phrase sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. You tell a lie, eat the gluttony, get drunk. It, it emanates from the heart. The, the sin comes from the heart, and we, we draw in uh, the actions that make it sinful, uh, whether we mess up our liver or kidneys or whatever we do by abusing our bodies. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body, the totality, the stomach, the heart, the liver, kidneys, phew, they're gone. They're not needed in the world to come, but the body. The body is. And therefore, we sin against our body when we commit sexual immorality. <clears throat> the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, verses 19 and 20. This is uh, hard, I think, for modern people to, to understand. It's, uh, it's contrary to what at least I was taught in my young years. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, the temple is the place where God dwells. We know that. You had the tabernacle in the wilderness. You had the, the temple uh, in the city of Jerusalem. In the most holy place, God dwelt within the holy place the priest functioned. We know that. <clears throat> your body now is where the Holy Spirit dwells. He dwells in you. Well, the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. He was sent by God, and you are not your own. As long as the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you belong to him. Your body is a tool for him to carry out his expectations. Why? Because you were bought at a price. Jesus paid for you with his blood. Therefore, Rather than glorifying your sexual appetites, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. To glorify God is to uh, do those things that God would have you to do. Children glorify their parents uh, a lot of times. Uh, yesterday, Miss Avery shot the winning shot at the end of the game. 
and uh, her mom and daddy's uh, smile was like out here somewhere. Uh, they, they were glorified by their daughter's actions. We're glorified by our children often. They come home with a good report card. Um, well, similarly, we're to glorify God. I guess maybe make God happy. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, chapter 7. Am I out of time? Is, is the buzzards buzzed? Well, why don't we just begin with chapter 7, Lord willing, next week.